Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, a podcast from SVLG, where we talk to the people driving change in our one-of-a-kind innovation ecosystem. Today we go from the state of education to what it's like to develop in a Bay Area location. Shaping the important conversation? Our SVLG hosts Nadia Anderson, Chief of Staff for SVLG and SVP of Strategy, as well as her co-host, Peter Leroux Munoz, SVLG General Counsel and SVP of Tech and Innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Anderson. And I'm Peter Leroux Munoz, and we're excited to be bringing you Silicon Valley Vibes. On this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes, I have some real talk with the president and managing partner of Republic Urban Properties, Michael Van Every, on all things commercial real estate. But first, we're headed over to San Jose State University to take a course from the Dean of the Lurie College of Education, Heather Latimer, on the current state of public education. This conversation definitely dives into the real where we're here a lot about where we are today when it comes to public college education, but also where we need to go if we are to center equity and learning for everything. And I think what's so interesting to me about this conversation is that San Jose State is going far beyond just simply educating a population. They're actively engaged in helping to build our society as a whole. And there are inequalities and inequities that currently need to be addressed. I am interested in listening in on this one a little bit more and figuring out what role they play in helping to shape our society. Let's listen in. Heather, thank you for joining our podcast. It is so great to be chatting with you today. Um, I'm going to do a quick introduction. I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. So I am Nadia Anderson. I'm Chief of Staff and Senior Vice President of Strategy at SVLG. I have an interesting background, which is why I'm very excited for this conversation. So. I received my doctorate in urban affairs and public policy from the University of Delaware, did a brief stint as a teacher's assistant, but in my personal life via either volunteerism or through my sorority remain very involved in education, especially when it comes to K through 12, but also, you know, post-secondary education pathways and careers, et cetera. So again, very excited about this conversation. I will stop talking and pass the virtual mic, so to speak, for you to give our listeners a quick introduction about who you are, what it is that you do, and also like where your passion lies in this conversation. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. It's so great to meet you. And I appreciate you sharing the, the experiences and perspectives that you that bring you to the conversation today. So my name is Heather Latimer. I'm currently serving as the Dean of the College of Education at San Jose State. I've been fortunate and privileged to be in that position for five years now. I'm just honored to be part of a system that is dedicated to providing access to higher education, but also a college of education that really does have an equity and justice framing at the heart of the work that we do in preparing educators for P20, all the way from early childhood through to higher education. So I, I come at this, I started out as a high school history teacher, actually in downtown San Jose in Lincoln High School, way back almost 30 years ago now, then went on to teach middle school. I started out history, middle school math was the next jump in my, my journey. Uh, that led to actually teaching a multi-discipline class in uh, math, English, and social studies, which led to opportunities to do some professional development work, write, do some writing, wrote some professional books, worked with a bunch of different districts around the country. And that led to a lot of questions about all this effort that we put into reform. Is that making a difference in the lives of children and families and communities? That Those questions led to a doctoral degree, which 
I did not anticipate going into academia, but there was a position that was open when I was coming out of my doctorate at UCSD and thought, that looks interesting. And so ended up in higher ed and have now been uh, uh, here in, for almost two decades in the higher ed space and feel really fortunate. But I, I, I'm struck by both you and I use those terms fortunate. You know, I, I similarly fortunate to have dedicated teachers, good opportunities, resources that allowed me to pursue the, the kinds of opportunities that quite frankly shouldn't be about being fortunate or lucky. They should be available to everyone. Sometimes people say, did you always know that you wanted to be a teacher? And, and the answer is no. For a long time, I actually fought against it. My teachers were telling me, my mom was a teacher. My teachers were telling you, you're going to be a teacher. And I kept saying, nope, 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 nope. I'm going to do something important, right? the arrogance of youth. And it was only when I was in college and actually I'd been doing a lot of justice work focused on unhoused community, students who were going home after school to empty homes or didn't have a space to go after school and providing support for them. It was when I was in Zimbabwe actually doing thesis research for my undergraduate thesis that I ended up working in a school in a rural community called Chikwaka, it was kind of this rock over the head of, oh, if you care about issues of justice, if you care about issues of equity, if you care about issues of mobility, then education is really at the foundation of all of this work. And so I came to education because I saw it as an opportunity to do work in the space of justice. Your history and experience as an educator is unique, but also I would say very like diverse, like being able to engage in the international context. So my first question from you is, tell us a little bit about, I would say the state overall of public education in the United States today. Like, where are we and what is it that you see we should be focusing on in order to do, as you mentioned, being able to center justice, equity, and mobility into the foundation of this very important discipline? It's a big question. And I certainly, I have a perspective, but certainly not the only perspective on that question. In some ways, I, I always want to be hopeful. And I think there are reasons to hope. There are certainly tons of dedicated educators who are working very diligently, putting their heart and souls into the work every day and, and center a love for children in the work that they're doing. And we've, we've seen movement in, in what it means to become an educator. So it used to be, particularly at the secondary level, that it was all about the discipline. It was all about your, your content knowledge. And while content knowledge is important, we've seen a shift in the conversation that is now saying, you know, even more important is the priority of loving children and believing that children, not just some children, but all children, are capable of excellence, have excellence within them. And that that is our priority and our mission as educators is to ensure that we're centering that in our classrooms day to day. At the same time, obviously, you know, nationally we hear headlines about the the pushback against the work that teachers do in the classroom every day. And so anti-trans, anti-LGBTQIA, anti-Black initiatives, anti-critical race theory initiatives are overwhelming. The pushback against AP African-American studies is something that I think on the one hand, we were we all knew was coming and at the same time was yet another 
slap in the face against the work that that so many in education and outside of education, and particularly in the Black community, have been working and advocating for. What we see there is when I talked about you know people who I see as as the reasons for hope. Unfortunately, so many of them feel as though they are isolated and on their own and exhausted and not getting the backup from the leadership, whether that is their school leadership, their district leadership, the state level leadership. Because even here in California, while we think we live in a more progressive bubble, there are certainly school districts across this state that have adopted anti-CRT initiatives that are trying to, to police the, the engagement of uh, trans youth in athletics. And so it is time which feels very fraught in education. And that's further exacerbated by the fact that we know that in many ways we are more segregated today, not only along race and ethnic lines, but also certainly around socioeconomic lines uh, than we ever have been. And given that funding is for schools is so dependent on zip code and where district is located on local funding formulas, it means that all of those inequities, all of those injustices are only exacerbated. And as a state in California, we have underfunded education P20 for decades now and moved from a belief, you know, 100 years ago, this country invested in, in building secondary schools because there was a recognition that we needed to access to, to high schools in order for students to be able to have the opportunities, job opportunities, um, and that our society needed it to develop economic opportunities for communities. So we invested in public education in high schools that were built and staffed and run free of charge to the students. Now, obviously there were huge inequities even then, but at least there was a belief that we needed to invest in secondary education. We have gone so far backwards. We know that secondary education is not enough, that really we need access to higher education. And yet we are underfunded access to higher education dramatically. The difference in cost of what it takes to go to be able to have access to a university education, including the CSUs, which are an incredible bargain. It's about $8,000 of tuition a year to attend a CSU, as opposed to more than $50,000 for so many of the privates. And you get an amazing, high-quality education that has lots of hands-on opportunities. But even at that low, low price tag of $8,000, that is way above what so many are able to afford, particularly when you factor in the cost of living that goes along with it. So this underfunding of education is, is something that is fraught P20 and means that we are really struggling with being able to, to live the promise of what education offers, public education offers, which is not just access and equity and mobility, but also preserving our democracy because it is supposed to be, Thomas Jefferson talked about education, not around economic mobility, not around idea of equity. He talked about it as essential to preserve democracy. And certainly we see tons of threats to democracy right now. Now, I, I really appreciate the Thomas Jefferson insertion there. I'm an alumni at the University of Virginia. And so we were taught to be, of course, lifelong learners and also very keenly aware of the connection between learning and exposure and critical thinking in order to be able to preserve this very fragile experiment of democracy that we are currently all in. In your, in your statement, you mentioned a number of things that could either be characterized as either like 
systemic or systematic barriers and challenges that we're facing. So I'm curious to hear, what do you identify as being behind that? And what can we do to actually change course when it comes to it? Because what you're saying is stuff that I remember from like my studies back in the early 2000s, when you talk about local funding programs, and you also talk about the fact that education is presented as a great equalizer and you're told, go to school, go do these things. You know, if you work hard, you'll be able to get it. But when you, you know, you look pound for pound, like the scales are tipped, you know, how should we be thinking about it? And why aren't more people, you know, I want to say up in arms, but paying attention to how, like, how fraught many of these things are for something that is so important to all of our institutions. We keep thinking that education is failing and and it is. It is failing our children, it's failing our communities, but it's also succeeding at doing the work that many of those who built it intended it to do, which is to offer opportunities to some and the appearance of opportunity to others. I think until we get there and until we have that hard conversation around what it is that we want to live in as a society, it's really hard to address some of the funding issues because right now it's seen as a a pie that is limited in its distribution as opposed to being able to grow the pie. And so we're fighting over resources instead of recognizing that we need to increase the resources because that will grow for everyone. I don't know if you've read Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us. In it, she talks about the impact of racism on limiting opportunities for all. And there is a powerful analogy that she uses. I mean, it's it's real, real life example, but she uses it as this powerful metaphor to talk about those limitations. And she talks about, you know, decades ago in the Midwest, there were these giant, beautiful public pools that that was the space, especially before air conditioning, where people in the summer would go and they would have opportunities to really jump in and enjoy the cool water and and have a space that was fun and, and community based. And then desegregation came along. And instead of welcoming everyone into the pool, they paved the pool over. And so instead of being willing to share, they destroyed the opportunity for everyone. And there are no public pools that are of that same, that same dynamic any longer. And I think that that's a, I mean, she uses that as a powerful analogy to talk about a whole host of different opportunities, but the same is absolutely true in public education. We don't want to share, we don't want truly equal access for everyone. And consequently, we're fighting over who gets access to limited resources. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley vibes after this. Silicon Valley Leadership Group hosts dozens of events every year with top leaders, area experts, and newsmakers from around the world. From dynamic roundtables to industry forums to our amazing signature events, like our Energy and Sustainability Summit and our upcoming annual forum. And your sponsorship can be a part of it. To find out how, go to svlg.org forward slash events. Hi, this is Vivi. Welcome back to the conversation and the innovation on Silicon Valley Vibes. Welcome back to SVV. So Nadia, let's take a listen in on the second half of your conversation. Anything to share at the outset? You know, Peter, Dean Latimer really brings the conversation home and puts a finer point on many of the things that many of us who have experienced and gone through the higher education system sort of have seen but not heard. 
And it was also very interesting to hear the real steps that San Jose State is actually taking when it comes to centering equity and curriculum. The Dean gives us a history of how we've got there, what's happening, but also calls out in a very clear way, in a way that often isn't said about what the contributing factors are when it comes to systemic racism and how we all need to be acting and moving together as people, as members of the same community, if we are to progress. And, that call, and she also calls out that some of the silos that currently exist are detrimental to our democracy and worth addressing in the short term. Let's get right to it. But the same is absolutely true in public education. We don't want to share, we don't want e truly equal access for everyone, and consequently, we're fighting over who gets access to limited resources. You know, you and I, as members in the same society, of like what impacts me is going to impact you as well, and that there is a little bit of shared responsibility and collective growth and progress. I wrote down what you said because I love the quote of opportunities for some, but the appearance of opportunities for all. And there are a number of systems and structures that operate that way. And it is most uniquely seen and felt when it comes to like the education and public education. Specifically, that example you mentioned, I went to graduate school in the state of Delaware. And when segregation, desegregation happened and integration happened, the public schools in the city all lost their population because, you know, people with means and resources who didn't want to mix, so to speak, took their kids out of school and put them in the private school. And so now you have a system that no longer has the base there in order to be able to operate and function. But also, it's interesting to me how, you know, we as humans are able to detach ourselves from things, thinking that if I just provide for mine, I'm good, but not recognizing that you have to actually go out and exist. And, you know, those big walls, the concrete walls, the glass are there because you've limited opportunities for everybody else and people are going to figure out how to survive. And that also has an impact on you as well. Um, I believe, I think it was Elizabeth, Senator Warren who said it best was like, you actually want everybody to be educated because you're not thinking about how everybody's world interacts with yours. You know, you may think of yourself as hyper important as a CEO, but you also should care about the person who is doing other things in the community and in the city that you live in. Because again, all these things directly impact you. would like to hear and would love for you to share with the audience, like, how are you all working to sort of break down those systems and structures to make sure that we can, you know, have that fundamental change that's needed if we are to both preserve our democracy and exist in, I guess, a civil society where it's not like me against you and we can like coexist. First of all, we're looking at ourselves and we're looking at our own practices. And so that's everything from what are the books that we're assigning and what are the, the assignments that we're offering in our courses? How are we ensuring that students are hearing from diverse voices, diverse perspectives in their learning? Who are the authors of the books that, that folks are reading? What are the, the experiences that they bring with them? What are the opportunities that we provide for students to share their knowledge, to share their expertise, and to recognize that they are coming with tremendous lived experiences? They're going to represent those experiences and arrange it so that the traditional research paper doesn't necessarily provide the greatest vehicle for everyone. That's not to say that writing and communication isn't important. They are. And there's also a lot of ways to come at that work and to be able to share your expertise. We also are, are looking at how we're admitting our students. Who are we recruiting into our programs? How are we building programs that break down barriers to entry? So in teacher education, for example, we know that right now in the state of California, teacher education is primarily a post-baccalaureate program. And that 
in and of itself presents a barrier to entry. And because for many students, after you're done with your undergraduate degree, you're carrying debt burdens that make it important to be able to begin repaying that. And that is both real and perceived. A lot of students, because of the concerns that they hear from other students and, and alums, as well as stories in the popular media, are very concerned, understandably, about carrying debt burdens. But also going into a career that in teaching, you know, there is, there's a cap on how much you're going to earn. Salaries have increased and there's a bill right now to potentially increase salaries even more, but it's still not a profession that people go into because they want to get rich. There's questions of how can I pursue this degree? So we're working to, we're working with a number of different school districts to pursue grant funding through residency grants that allow not only tuition funding, but also living stipends for students while they're in the program to receive fifteen dollars to $20,000, as well as fully funded tuition so that they can be part of the program. We've worked around admissions requirements. And so some of that is pushing, working with the state to look at some of the standardized test requirements that are there in the, the state, uh, particularly around content area knowledge and basic subject expertise to say, yeah, yes, we want everybody to have a basic understanding of math and English, but maybe having that standardized test is not the only way that they can demonstrate that expertise. Um, we've also been doing a lot of recruitment work. So recruiting from not just our undergraduate population within the, the San Jose State University system, but also looking at our community colleges and working in partnership with advisors and mentors there, working in partnership with our high schools, as well as we just held an event this last weekend that was our celebration of education, where we asked teachers and professors to nominate somebody who's in their class, who they see as a future transformative leader or a transformative educator, um, they come to campus, we give them a certificate, and we have a big event that recognizes them, and we give them a guaranteed $1,000 scholarship. And while that may not seem like a lot, and it's only, it's a down payment is what we tell them on the funding opportunities that are available, but it's something that is tangible and saying, we believe in you and we want to invest in you and having people know that they have that. We've had, we've been doing this now for six years. We've had more than 50 students take us up on it. And this year, our youngest that were that were nominated for that were from Mr. Enna. I want to give Mr. Enna a big shout out. He's a kindergarten teacher in Oak Grove School District and for many years has been the only Black educator in his district. And he nominated one of his second graders and one of his third graders to be part of this celebration this year. And so we recognize that this is something that we need to, to prioritize in our work is not just the curriculum that we're teaching and how we're engaging with students but and the research that our faculty are doing but also how we are recruiting students into our program and over the last five years we've seen a 30 and 40 percent jump in the number of latinx as well as asian american students as well as a 35 percent jump in the number of first generation students to the point where those students are now outpacing the white students who are coming into our program. Still room to grow, still room to improve. We need to, to particularly focus on how are we increasing our Black and Indigenous communities coming into our educator workforce, but we're working intentionally to really ensure that we're moving in those directions. Now, you said a lot there. You've dropped a ton of gems for our listeners. The one thing I will say is that if you are looking to effectuate change, like Heather just gave you all the playbook for all the things that you need to do or should be considering, because it is 
a comprehensive package. I think that piece that you touched on is one of the perceived and real barriers for many folks who are recognizing what's happening or interested in, you know, giving back and wanting to join like the education field is that fact of like many of us left undergrad with loans. And when you looked at who was going to be the quickest path to pay back the loans, it wasn't getting another certification or having to take tests. It was going to find that job, even if it was not aligned with your passion or skill, because you needed to give, you know, the government, Sally Mae and whomever, you know, their money back. And I think that other piece you made to you talked about about removing those barriers, like I'm notoriously a bad test taker. So any profession that required me to take a standardized test was like, I can't put myself through that stress again. I did it for like the SATs and the ACTs. Let me find another another route and path. I did muster and get through it for like the GRE for grad school, but it wasn't pretty. And in no way, shape or form would I do it again. But I love the fact that, you know, proactively identifying things that may be unnecessary friction when there are people who are suited to be educators who care about the field and want to get into it in the way. And again, like I love the reframing, you know, an educator is comprehensive. It's kind of like a wraparound as opposed to being to feeling siloed. I know we are brushing up on time. We probably could have continued this for hours because I did want to jump down that rabbit hole with you. Um, The last question I have for you is what message and word do you have for, you know, Silicon Valley corporations, tech companies, et cetera? You know, there are lots of companies who are interested, active and engaged when it comes to like workforce development. But sometimes the view is very myopic. And sometimes the view is also, I will say, shaded by something that you alluded to before about this um, is a pedigree like conversation and a pedigree misconception and myths about like pipeline and not having people or knowing where the people are. So wanted to give you the floor as the last question to, you know, let let us know what we need to know. Tell us what we need to what we should be doing. And, you know, if necessary, correct us if we're thinking something in the wrong way. I understand why a lot of the the companies and the the leaders that uh, I've connected with over the last uh, five years in this role are concerned about immediate payoff for education and how they're going to change it. Right? They're 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 reporting to their shareholders. Goodness knows the stock market responds immediately. But what we've talked about today and what we see as the challenges you talked about you know the sisyphean task of an individual educator it's also changing the system is a sisyphean task if we're going to do that in meaningful ways and we're going to have the workforce that we need in 5 10 15 20 years when i think most of these companies still want to be around we need to have that longer term vision we need to have that longer term understanding that goes back to that question of, you know, it's not just investing in my child's education, it's investing in all children's education so that the life that all of our children have, including our own, moving forward is the life that we want for them. How are we growing that pie? And so that's kind of the, the challenge because I think there's there's a lot of companies that are doing great, they'll do a great program with third graders of a science fair project, or they'll, they'll bring teachers in to come do some work during the summer to, to learn about what happens in a lab. There are a ton of great individual programs out there. We need to be having the conversation around how do we knit this work together in a way that's going to lead to systematic change? And how can we use the power of leaders in this valley to advocate for change in funding models, in investment levels, 
not just from private, because we know that while, yes, we do need private investment, and if somebody wants to donate San Jose State, I am certainly happy to engage in that conversation, but we also long-term need to not rely on philanthropy. We need to rely on public investment in public education that is at a level that ensures success for everyone. And so I think that's, that's the biggest ask I would have is how can we engage in a conversation that's the long view and recognizing that this is about the health of our communities, it's about the health of our society, the economy, and the companies that make up this valley, it's gonna take a long-term conversation. So long-term strategic thinking that has strategy and tactics associated with it and also growing the pie, so not limiting your options to one source or doing the, the flash in the pan one-off, but thinking, comprehensively thinking over the long term and sort of gaming out what needs to be done and then putting some skin in the game. Heather, Dean Latimer, thank you so much for the conversation today. I am absolutely looking forward to like meeting in real life, but also bringing back the conversation and continuing this because you dropped some gems in our conversation today. Lots that could be conversations on their whole, but I think are beneficial for public education, for how we think about things, but also for the greater implications it has for us as we, you know, we work and move forward. Silicon Valley Vibes will be back after this quick message. I'm Ahmad Thomas, CEO at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. As part of our acceleration agenda, I'm here to announce SVLG's new working group on responsible AI. It's the first initiative we're rolling out under our new Technology and Innovation Center of Expertise. We recognize the tremendous potential of and profound interest around this new technology, and we're committed to ensuring that AI is developed and implemented in a responsible way. The working group is co shared by SVLG member companies Google and Johnson & Johnson. As the group takes shape, we look forward to working with industry experts, academics, and other stakeholders to bring diverse voices, perspectives, and disciplines to the table. If you'd like to get involved, please visit svlg.org to learn more. Up next on Silicon Valley Vibes, it's the three most important things in real estate. Location, location, location. With Premier Bay Area developer, Michael Van Every. Welcome back to SVB. So Nadia, we're gonna shift gears a little bit to my conversation with Michael Van Every of Republic Urban Properties for his take on commercial real estate. He is one of the premier developers in the Bay Area and just recently completed the Gateway Project which has been in the works for many, many years. It's one of the biggest development projects in the Bay Area that marries transportation-oriented development with residential housing and commercial opportunities there as well. Uh, it really gets kind of spicy, but uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the issue. My sentiment exactly. This was a hot conversation on many fronts. And what is very interesting is that Michael highlighted some of the very real issues that the commercial real estate sector is gonna be facing in the coming years. So definitely felt his passion, felt all the things that he was saying with his chest, as they say. Let's take a listen. Well, we are very lucky to have with us today, Michael Van Every, president and managing partner at Republic Urban Properties, known for developing institutional quality real estate throughout the United States, from land development to historic adaptive reuse to shopping malls. Michael, welcome to the show. And first off, congratulations on the grand opening of the Gateway. That, that is a massive accomplishment. How does it feel to have that finally completed? 
Uh, thank you. It feels like it took 13 years, which it did. Uh, so it feels really good to have it open. Well, it's an exciting project. I drive by there all the time. And that is one of the biggest multimodal uh, centers for transportation in our region. Can you talk a little bit about how that project was designed, how it came about, and ultimately how you pulled it off? Sure. So we started looking at it um, through Barrier Area Rapid Transit, BART, and Caltrain as far back as like 2011. And of course, we were coming out of a recession. It's a perfect time to work with public-private partnerships, which Republic uh, specializes not just in California, but all throughout the country. And so when we, when we saw that nine acre surface level parking lot, that was a specific plan dream. And ultimately the BART station was developed in 2000. And then of course uh, it was high time to develop that parking lot into, you know, a TOD and BART has uh, done several TODs uh, throughout its system over the last couple decades. But this was a chance to really work where there's two, you know, rail lines and actually a third rail line eventually that will come through with high speed rail. Um, it's just a wonderful site. It's uh, it's pretty much a, a scripted TOD where you take a surface level parking lot and you create four separate commercial assets, which we accomplish between a hotel, an office, uh, residential, both affordable and market rate. So. Uh, we were pleased to be able to actually pull all of those assets off at once in terms of one construction timeline for four separate assets. So uh, very fortunate we were able to pull that off before the pandemic uh, closed us out. And Michael, you use the term TOD. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what that is and why it's so important to our housing stock? TOD stands for Transit Orientated Development. I'm sure many of your listeners have heard that. It's pretty simple. Um, it's, you know, what I would call that last mile location of any property it doesn't necessarily need to be owned by government, but the last mile, uh, next to a train station, a bus stop, any kind of multimodal non-automobile kind of, uh, you know, transit, typically it's public transit, um, that essentially we, we build, uh, commercial properties by. And um, it's been a pretty well accepted uh, type of land use here in the Bay Area say, over the last 15 years. And uh, Republic happens to specialize that, uh, not just here, but also in D.C. Well, congratulations again to you and Republic Urban Properties. That is an amazing project. Uh, very exciting to see how that becomes integrated into the larger community in that region. So uh, certainly well done on that. And, you know, speaking of real estate more broadly. I would love to get your thoughts and perspective on something that I think a lot of us are starting to talk about more, and that's the state of commercial real estate. So, so where is commercial real estate in 2023? Yeah, excellent question. And it's uh, definitely the news of the day. Commercial real estate um, is both uh, uh, you know, a good and bad kind of scenario right now. So uh, the bad part of that scenario is, you know, we've seen a lot of valuations rolled back, especially in the office sector. And I think that comes as no surprise. But then you, we've also seen a rollback in the, in the commercial sector uh, on all asset classes as a result of higher interest rates. Um, and so I think for the immediate future, we are going to see very little new construction of commercial assets of all types. Uh, in the greater Bay Area, when I say the greater Bay Area, I mean San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland, Walnut Creek. Um, however, you know, the, the good of it is, um, you know, we're still seeing apartment rent growth. 
Um, there's still much needed uh, housing that needs to be provided inside of the inner core cities within these transit corridors that we've previously discussed. And so this is kind of a pause, I think, for apartment construction um, and a, 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 an indefinite pause for commercial office construction. Um, but we're also seeing some signs of life in the hotel side, not necessarily full service hotels. Think of that as where you have room service in, in, a, in a Weston or, or Marriott, um, you know, Regency. But I, I, we are seeing that the select service brands, the Marriott Residence Inn, the Homewood Suites, those hotels in the commercial act class are, are doing well. And there's, uh, there's demand for more of those hotels in the future. So it's a good and bad scenario. I'm not sure it's long-term. But certainly, um, you know, uh, developers and, and property owners like myself, uh, we're concerned about the economy in 2023. And so given the fact that I think there are a lot of discussions right now happening at many different companies and institutions and organizations about a, a full return to work, do you think that's impacting what's going on right now with commercial real estate? And do you see any sort of signs that that might uh, that might that return to work might accelerate or stay where it is for the time being. Well, in 2020, I was on record uh, actually with this organization, the SVLG, uh, lecturing county supervisors and others that be careful what you wish for related to remote work. Um, and and you know because here we are today and we have you know widespread vacancies. Um, there's concern that, you know, there will be commercial office defaults here uh, in the billions of dollars nationwide. And it's because technology, um, and to some extent, has proven, once again, to make certain parts of our life uh, obsolete. So, you know, just like the dial phone went away and your, v your VCR went away and even your DVR has gone away, uh, hybrid work is here to stay. And so if you combine a new hybrid work schedule uh, along with potentially, you know, layoffs that are happening, it is somewhat of a perfect storm in 2023. And I, I do think that the demand for commercial office will be less. Um, but the concern I have with that is what will be the demand for transit ridership on top of that? Because uh, getting people to point A to point D, B to their job, uh, by transit is has always been a big strategy for for local government and agencies like BART and VTA. So yes, um, you know there's major concern going forward about um, what is the future of commercial office, and I, I don't think we're going to know uh, because a lot of these companies now are still trying to figure out who is their workforce going forward, and then again, who wants to return to work or who can we get back to work because we've given a lot of power away. Our employers are giving a lot of power away to their employees. And so, again, I think the future is a hybrid schedule moving forward. So it seems that there are two sides of the same coin here, the real estate coin. There's the commercial side and then there's the residential side. You spoke a little bit about the commercial side of the coin. How does that impact with the high vacancy rates and everything else going on there? How does that impact the residential side? And how will that impact Silicon Valley's current housing crisis? Excellent question. And, and I think still a work in progress. But what we've learned is people still like to live in, you know, major cities. Um, you know, while San Francisco's financial district is well known to be in, you know, a little bit vacant and, and sleepy, the Marina district is thriving as, as, as much as it always has. 
as is a, a neighborhood like Willow Glen in San Jose or, uh, you know, uh, parts of Oakland and the Claremont areas of Oakland. I mean, I think what we've learned is that the, the major neighborhoods are, are still vibrant and they're still, you're seeing for sale housing, you know, really not level off as much as they thought in terms of prices for, for purchase of homes, even despite interest rate levels that are now in the 5% range. Um, it's an interesting thing. And so people want all the services of restaurants and entertainment, theater, and all the things that major cities provide, and sports teams and others. However, now they're probably willing to live a little farther away from those urban job corridors because they know they don't have to go in as often. What that is doing is it is spreading us out a little bit more than we'd probably like. And so tertiary markets like Fairfield, California, Hollister, California, and other tertiary and secondary markets are starting to see more population growth. It's a, and, and because people can work from home. Um, yet our apartments and the inner core still remain relatively full in the 90 percentile range, as many of my projects are here in San Jose, California. So um, it's, it's, it's an ongoing kind of experiment because we've come out of a historic, you know, pandemic and we're still gathering data to what that means to our behavioral, you know, aspects uh, going forward. And those behavioral aspects affect commercial real estate. Michael, do you see these trends that you've just spoken about holding true on a national scale, or is this just a Silicon Valley, California kind of situation? Uh, I think Silicon Valley, because we lead the way in technology, is always going to, you know, technology is going to make things obsolete. Um, heck, we're uh, pretty soon the gas-fired engine will be obsolete. It's because we've created incredible battery technologies to create basically better cars. Uh, but Yes, I, I think that nat nationwide, um, you will still see uh, a lot of remote work, and I think it will become it will become even a more global society. My concern is that, you know, if we start letting people, you know, hire people remote, what's going to stop us from hiring lower wage workers in other parts of the world to save a buck? And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, capitalism is about making money and companies always look for ways to maximize profits. So we've got to be careful and we've got to work with our, our leaders and uh, business and in government and make sure that we're, you know, maintaining these business corridors that we're creating jobs in our region and that we're keeping those jobs in our region and that, you know, and somehow moving forward that will combine some kind of hybrid work. Um, and so again, but making sure that na nationally, that we maintain our workforce and that we're creating jobs for those people in our communities. So Michael, I have one final question for you. Do you have any predictions on what the cities of the future will look like? Well, cities of the future, I think will look like, um, I still think compact growth is a key factor to maintaining the course of our country with carbon emissions. I can't see a future that allows us to continue to extend into open spaces that we can't provide services to. And so I still like the, the city's uh, compact growth that we grow up, not out. And I think the future, you know, still holds that. I think people inevitably, what we've learned is that we miss being around people. We, and so that's why our cities are so excellent and so much fun. I consider myself to be a city ad and, and I, I, I love the city. 
Uh, it's because it provides so many things for me and my family and that enrich our lives. Uh, I think the future continues to be that way. I, I, I fail to believe that we'll be isolated and that we'll want to keep growing out. So the strategy of growing in and growing smart is still part of our future. Michael, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I know that I have learned a lot and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. Thank you for sharing those really critical insights into the real estate market and where things are going into the future. Thank you for joining us today. Okay, Peter, thank you and uh, have a great summer. Now it's time for the Silicon Valley Vibes wrap out for Peter and Nadia to give their take and a little takeaway. And so that was the conversation. There are lots of lessons, people, the workforce, but also where folks are gonna live, exist, and be able to get around. And I will say there was a little bit of, you know, Nostradamus and predictions included in the talks, but also a lot of hope for what we should be focusing on. And I like that last point that you brought out about what we should be focusing on. To me, the word here that sums up, I think, both of these stories is really around equity. It's thinking about what kind of opportunities are we providing for our future workforce and their education? And what opportunities are we providing for our community members in terms of where they're able to live and where they're able to be part of a community? So I think equity is the big takeaway here. And that wraps up this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. Please like, share, and subscribe. And remember, with millions of stories in Silicon Valley, you can't always get all the details, but you can get the vibes right here on Silicon Valley Vibes. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Silicon Valley Vibes, the podcast where your human being chocolate fell in my AI peanut butter, and it's great. Our humans are our executive producer, Chuck Dickinson. Our audio mastering by R.R. Robbins. Our podcast is produced by the humans at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. AI music provided by SoundRaw. Recording production support provided by the platform Riverside FM. Your AI announcer, me, Vivi, is provided by Eleven Labs. Okay, robot joke time. Why did the AI cross the road? Because it was programmed by a chicken. Yeah, don't blame me for that one. ChatGPT wrote it. Vivi, signing off.